Let's begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 18. Word of God says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of, fle- of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh <coughs> and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This is He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness have we all received, and grace for grace." For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You and we thank You for this day. We know, Lord, this is a day that You've made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Father, this day is a gift from You, an opportunity uh, full of choices, full of decisions that must be made. Help us all to make the decision in these next few moments to open our hearts to the truth of Your Word. Lord, not to look around and say, how could this apply to them? But to look within and say, Lord, what are You saying to me and about my life in particular? I pray that You would stir each heart and I pray that You'd receive much glory from everything that's transpired. We don't want to do anything that would rob You of glory. We don't want to do anything that dishonor the name of Christ. Help us, Lord, by Your Spirit to give glory unto Him and to do only those things that please You. And we'll be sure to give You the praise, honor, and glory for it. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to be in two passages of Scripture, if that's okay. (laughs) What I want to do is I want to look at these verses that we've read in the book of John. But before we read and look at those, I want to reach back into the book of Luke. Because when we think of the Christmas story, we think of the book of Luke. And uh, no doubt for the past month, your mind and your life and your thoughts have been occupied with many of the things contained in Luke's record of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things I like about the book of John, you know, John is the only book in the Word of God that's written purely to the sinner. It's written that you may believe on the Son of God. That's what John says later on. I think it's a good thing when somebody's seeking the truth of God's Word and seeking uh, to find God in life to encourage them to read the book of John because God has tailor-designed the book of John to lead the sinner to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so as you read the book of John, you'll find that many of them, I don't want to call them incidental, they're not incidental, they're providential, but many of the uh, sort of uh, trappings of the Christmas season, if we can call it that, and I'll say that just in lieu of a better word, but many of the things that we associate with Christmas have been stripped away from the story and truth and ideal of the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is about, you know, the birth of Jesus Christ. 
It's not about shepherds, not about mangers, not about wise men. And all of those things, by God's providence, have their place. But what it's about is the birth of Jesus Christ. We use a big theological word sometimes. It's the incarnation. That God was, as John says here, manifest in the flesh. And so, John, knowing that the lost man has no need for any of the uh, sort of, again, for lack of a better word, extraneous details uh, that might not necessarily pertain to him and his lost condition, God strips all those away. He, he reserves those for the person that knows Christ. And he focuses in on the bigger principles of Christ's coming and birth. And I want you to notice them with me. There's four of them that we'll look at. Now, again, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. You can. I'm going to be reading in Luke chapter 2, and then I'm going to be reading in John chapter number 1. But I want you to listen to how Luke begins his story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Verse number 1 of chapter uh, 2 of the book of Luke says this, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. All went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now, there's a lot of historical details contained there. There's a lot of things that even inform secular history about some uh, things that have puzzled them until uh, the archaeological record revealed that the Word of God was true. But the thing that I find to be preeminent in those verses, the great theme of those verses is the providence of God. We find when we read those verses that God literally moved the hearts, minds, and pens, and empires of kings and nations that He might ready the world for the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. I've been preaching on this for three weeks. I'm not going to belabor it, but I will just simply say this, that never before in human history could what occurred here have occurred. Never before was there the road system, was there the judicial system uh, to support a worldwide census. Never before was there the peace and stability that was necessary. Never before had the routes of travel been developed in a way to facilitate a worldwide taxation. Literally, God was moving the gears of the Roman Empire to make the perfect moment for Christ to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, one of the things I love, sometimes when you read the Word of God, you got to get out the microscope. Sometimes when you read the Word of God, you got to get out the telescope. Some of you all know what I mean when I say that. And when you read the Word of God, you'll find that when you step back and look at the big picture, uh, oftentimes it will give you a fresh perspective. Listen to the names that are contained here. It says Caesar Augustus. He's the Roman emperor. He's literally the leader of the free world. Then we're told about Serenius, the governor of Syria. He's one of the most powerful men in the world and the most powerful man in that immediate region. But it's not these great men of power that are the focus of these first five verses. Rather, God homes in on this little couple, Mary and Joseph. Mary is great with child. He's not looking at Rome. He's not looking at Athens. He's not looking at Jerusalem. But rather, He homes in on this little town of Bethlehem and draws the veil back and shows us with great detail the place of Christ's birth. Why does he do that? Because the Word of God had prophetically uttered many, many years before Malachi had pinned down, or I'm sorry, Micah had pinned down that it would be Bethlehem, Judah that would be the birthplace of the Son of God. I'm saying this, there was a lot of big things going on, but who does God pay attention to? He's paying attention to Jesus Christ. 
You want to understand the providence of God? Put Jesus in a place of preeminence. And all of a sudden, everything will start to make sense. When you realize this thing ain't about you, this thing ain't about me, this thing ain't about uh, this uh, part of the world, this thing ain't about uh, Tennessee, this thing, and I love Tennessee. Somebody say amen to that. This thing ain't about Tennessee. It ain't about America. This thing is about the Lord Jesus Christ. When you put Him in a place of preeminence, all of a sudden all the puzzle pieces start to fit together and it starts to make sense. I think what God's saying in these five verses... Though he, he, he casually drops the name of the most powerful man in the world, he says he ain't of no consequence. But look down in the city of Bethlehem, and you'll find a young maiden that is, uh, Holy Ghost has moved upon her, and she is though of a virgin womb, she is still with child, and that holy thing that shall be born in her, and of her shall be called the Son of God. The providence of God all points to the preeminence of Christ. And we find this truth present in John's Gospel as well. Listen to how John's Gospel opens. In the beginning was what? The Word. Not in the beginning was a big bang. Not in the beginning was primordial sludge. Not in the beginning was some pagan god. Not, not, and listen, I ain't against science. I'm against science falsely so called. But I ain't against science, but it doesn't say in the beginning was science. It doesn't say in the beginning was philosophy. It doesn't say in the beginning was social justice. It says in the beginning was what? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Unless we wonder what that means, John even grows bolder and says the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Then he says this, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The book of John opens with a great focus upon the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God the Father features prominently throughout the book of John too. But why is it that John opens not talking about the Sovereign Father, but talking about the Son? Because if a sinner is ever going to know God, he's going to have to come to know Him through the Son. Hey, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what everybody's looking for. They're looking for a way to heaven. They're looking for the truth of the matter. And they're looking for a life that has meaning. Christ says, I'm all three. You find me, you found everything. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says this, No man comes unto the Father but by me. John lays great emphasis on the Son because to the sinner, the Son is all that matters. If he doesn't know the Son, he doesn't know the Father. John would later on emphasize this in the book of 1 John, that if you have the Son, you have the Father. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. You may claim that you know God. You may claim you and Him are on speaking terms. You may claim you and the quote-unquote big man upstairs are okay. But if you've never bowed your knee as a sinner, confessed your helplessness, and called upon Christ to forgive you and save you, then you don't know God. You may know about Him. You may know of Him, but you don't know Him. And so there's great or great emphasis laid on the preeminence of Jesus Christ. John says all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And Paul would pick up this theme in the book of Colossians and say this, that all things were made for Him. That they, that by Him, Paul says, all things consist. What is it that God's trying to get us to understand? Well, when we read Luke's account, we find that one of the great emphasis is that God's not paying attention to Rome. He's not paying attention to Athens. He's not even paying attention to Jerusalem. Where God's focus is, is in Bethlehem. And the reason is because that's where His Son is. 
The focus of God's gaze is always upon His Son. That's why the safest place you can be is in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The safest place you can be is in Christ. Because God's eyes are always beholding and watch care His Son. And in John's Gospel, we learn this same principle to be true. What's the first thing God wants to say to a sinner? He wants to say, my Son is divine. He is the Creator. He is the emphasis. He is the focus. He is the purpose. This is the reason that Christianity without Christ is nonsensical. Listen, when you try to put Mary in the place of Christ like the Roman Catholics do, it don't make any sense. Hey, even when you try to put the Father in place of the Son like the Jehovah's Witnesses do, it don't make any sense. The only way Christianity can be coherent and powerful is to place Christ in the position of preeminence. Everything's been created, Paul said, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Can I ask you a question? This isn't really my sermon. But every time I talk about preeminence, I want to ask you, is He preeminent in your life? You know, there's a lot of us that He's prominent in our life, but He ain't preeminent. He's above a lot of things, but He ain't above everything. we got a few golden calves in our life that we say, well, nothing can touch that. Hey, I'll give Him a lot of things, but I won't give Him that. If there's anything in your life that you've placed out of bounds of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the Son of God and the will of God, then He may be prominent. Hey, listen, He may all your Facebook may be posts of Jesus. It's all right. Patty thought it was funny. She got the same kind of sick sense of humor I do, so me and her get along. Your, or maybe I just hit you with it. You know how it is with me. Like, that's... Half time, it'd, it'd pay you to amen just so I'll move on. Amen? Hey, it may occupy your Facebook feed. It may be something that you even talk about with people. You may make much of Jesus in your speech. But I wonder if He has a place of preeminence in your life. Does He have it all? Does He have everything? To make Him preeminent don't just mean to make Him prominent and important. It means to make Him your all in all. Your all in all. I wonder if He's preeminent in your life. In John's Gospel, we see the providence of God is set forth. And then listen to what it says in the book of Luke, chapter 2. You'll remember these verses. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Who? Mary. Mary should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. John tells this same story. But listen to how he says it. Verse number 4 of John chapter 1, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light, John says, shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Look down at verse 11. It says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. John said, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. One of the great themes of the Christmas narrative is not only the providence of God, but the pride of the world. Now, I said this the other day, we was preaching around this passage in the book of Luke. I think we're pretty hard on the innkeeper here. I think, truth be told, we're pretty hard on all Bible characters. We always say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, you would have, and you would have done worse. You wouldn't have even given him a manger. But the reality is, I do think that this innkeeper, though he's not named in Scripture... But there must have been somebody that said, I'm sorry, there's no room. 
I think he's representative of the position of the world relating to the person of Jesus Christ. What a remarkable thing it is that the Son of God was born not in a palace, that he was born and not laid in a feather bed, but rather that he was born and laid in a manger. What a remarkable thought it is. He wasn't robed in purple and royalty, but he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was not attended to by hosts of servants, but by humble shepherds. What a remarkable thing it is. Listen now, that the Creator God of the world, that the Creator of all things, could come face to face with and step into His creation, and His creation know Him not. Let me tell you what I will say for that innkeeper. I bet if he had known who it was that was knocking at his door, he would have made room. He would have kicked somebody out if he had had to. I'm sure of it. But the world, even knowing who Christ is, has rejected Him. Even knowing Him to be the Son of God, they nailed Him to a rugged cross. You say, well, preacher, they didn't know. If a Roman soldier can stand there and say, surely, truly, this man was the Son of God, you'll never convince me that the chief priests at least didn't have an inkling. They understood what they were doing. They were not ignorant. They were not naive. They esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then the Bible says this, they hid, as it were, their faces from him. They knew who he was, but they knew what it would mean to accept him as who he was. So they labeled him a malefactor, a blasphemer, and an insurrectionist. And with the cruel hand of Rome, they nailed him to a cross. And they said, His blood be upon us and our children. Give us Caesar. Let no king reign over us but Caesar. The world, knowing who Christ is, still pushed Him away. John says the reason was not because they didn't know Him, not because they couldn't recognize Him, but because in them was darkness, and the darkness comprehended not the light. Later on, the Word of God would say that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. It's not that their deeds are evil because they love darkness. They love darkness because their deeds are evil. Because it's who they are. A famous preacher once made the statement, said that, well, you know, we're, we're sinners because we sin. That's wrong. That's false. That's backwards. That's human thinking. That presumes that man is not depraved. The Word of God tells us that, listen, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's what we are. It's who we are. And else we're miraculously changed by the Spirit of God and the Gospel of Christ. It's all we'll ever be. The pride of the world in pushing away the Son of God. And listen, I hope this isn't true. And if it is true, I hope it won't be true here in about another 40 minutes. Don't get nervous. I don't mean I'm going to preach that long. Oh, man, I, I showed my hand. I shouldn't have done that. But there might be somebody that's in their pride pushing him away this morning. You might be sitting here saying, well, you know, listen, I'm, I'm all for church, but I don't know about this religion getting fanatic and all that. Listen, I, I don't mind putting a little money in the offering plate. I don't mind showing up once a month or so. But I don't know about this whole receiving Christ. I don't know about this whole giving my life to Him. You're giving Him a manger, but you won't let Him in the end. You want to give Him a place, but you don't want to give Him preeminence. The pride of the world was one of the great themes of the Christmas story. Then look a little further. 
in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it doesn't end there. It says there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. They were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I like that term, good tidings. We've been talking a lot about it over the past few weeks. You know, the word gospel means good news, good tidings. And I, I, listen, I wouldn't presume to change anything about the Word of God. It said exactly how it ought to be. But I do think we ought to recognize that this statement by the angels is deeply and closely connected to the idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What made it good news? What made it good news was the truth that later on that same babe that laid in the manger would grow into manhood, would live a perfect, sinless, spotless life, would die upon a rugged cross as our substitute, as the Lamb of God, would raise again in power and in glory, and to as many as received Him to them gave you power to become the sons of God. Without the death of Christ, the birth of Christ is of no consequence, of no meaning. It doesn't mean anything to merely live, be a good teacher, be a good man. It wouldn't have changed you. It wouldn't have changed me. It couldn't have helped anyone out of their sin condition. It's His death that brings the promise of eternal life and His resurrection. John says it this way, But as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One of the great themes of the Christmas story is not only the providence of God and the pride of the world, but the promise of salvation. A Savior is born. You know why men need a Savior? Because they're sinners. The greatest need the human condition, the human heart has in its depraved, fallen condition is of a Savior. I like that my Bible says uh, good news to all men. Not to some, not to a few. God ain't picking out a baseball team. To all men that a Savior is born unto them, for them to die in their place. Preacher, how can I know that Savior? Well, John is the one that enlightens us. The world has rejected Him. They've refused Him. Maybe some in this room have pushed Him away. Preacher, how can it all change? Do I have to be baptized? No. Do I have to join a church? No. If anything, if it's like our church, it might count against you. I don't know. Do I have to do a bunch of good works, give a bunch of money? Go work at a soup kitchen. What did John say? I'm not preaching me. I'm preaching the Bible. What did John say? As many as received Him, to them gave He power. Not to those that had power He gave Himself, but to as many as received Him. You've got to quit pushing Him away. And you've got to recognize your helplessness. Confess yourself a sinner and say, All right, Lord, I'll take you just as you are. Lord of my life, I'll give you all of it. I'll take your righteousness if you'll take my sinfulness. And once you do that, He gives you power to become the sons of God. It's it's by the operation of faith, Paul said. It's not something you and I do. It's something God does. But we must surrender our will to His will. We must receive Him. You can make the choice. You can walk out of these doors rejecting Him. Nobody can stop you. You can live the rest of your life rejecting Him. But no, one day He'll reject you. But if you'll receive Him today, He'll receive you. The promise of salvation. Then one final thing and I'm done. Look what it says in Luke chapter number 2, verse number 12. 
This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. All they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Over and over again in that passage, you find God and the Lord spoken about. And the heavenly host told them, said, this is going to be the sign. Whatever babe you find in this condition, that's not just a, a preacher, that's not just a prophet, that's not just a teacher, that's not just a deliverer, but that is very God in the flesh. You find that babe, you found everything. I think one of the great themes, I think the great theme, the, the, the uh, bigger theme of the Christmas story is the presence of God. The angel told Joseph and Mary that they would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What a radical concept that is to the human heart. You think about even the religions that mankind has devised out of the dark recesses of his soul. None of them features close, intimate fellowship with God. God's always at a distance. He's always on the moon, on another planet, in some uh, realm to which He cannot be reached. He's always uh, hidden in in, uh, the flesh of some far-off distant religious leader or cloaked behind a barrier of priesthood. Only in Bible Christianity is God with us. You say, well, preacher, that's in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. Uh, What did the book of Deuteronomy say? The Word is not far off. It's nigh unto you, even in your mouth and in your heart, that you may believe it. God's desire has always been to have close, intimate fellowship with man. So it should be no wonder that John says this in verse number 14 of John chapter 1. He says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. The great theme of Christmas is that God manifested Himself unto us in the person of Jesus Christ. After three and a half years of walking together, of ministry, the night before the crucifixion, they were in the upper room and Christ was teaching great and deep spiritual truths. And Philip, in frustration, throws his hands up and says, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And Christ turned and looked at him and said, Philip, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me? He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can we know God? We can know Him only and completely through Jesus Christ, His Son. 
And the great theme of Christmas is that God loved you and I enough that He would humble Himself, robe Himself in flesh, experience, leave palaces of eternal glory and praise and walk in a world that hated Him and rejected Him and scoffed at Him and scorned Him and spit upon Him and crucified Him that He might bear our sins and become our sins that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The great truth of Christmas is not found in the decorations or the gifts or the parties or the revelry. The great theme and truth of Christmas is found in the fact that God came to us when we could not come to Him, when we could not ascend to His heights of holiness, when we could not reach under realms of glory. God came to us that we might know Him, that we might be redeemed. I have two questions for you in closing. A musician can come. One, do you know Him? If you don't know Him, then you're missing everything. Don't leave the room before you bow your heart, your head before Him. Confess yourself for what you are, a sinner, and ask Him to forgive you and save you. He'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And if you already know Him, can I ask you this? Is He preeminent? Not just is He prominent. Are you listening to me? Are you hearing me? Not just is He prominent, but is He everything to you? Is He the most important thing to you? Does your devotion to Him tower above your devotion to any and everything else? Is your commitment to Christ big enough to dwarf the desires of this world? If He's not, He should be. If He's not, He must be if you're to be where you need to be. You need to put Him in a place of preeminence in your life. Own Him as your Lord. Worship Him as your Master. Yield to Him everything. Give your life and all that it means to Jesus Christ this morning.